All right, we're in week two of a series called uh, Cancelled. And so if you missed uh, any part of last week, each of these weeks kind of build on themselves a little bit. But I want to start off with um, a definition of cancelled, and it's kind of how it has become known in our culture right now. And it's cancellation is applied when a person is stripped of their value, influence, or place in the world because of their perceived past or present views, opinions, or behaviors, just completely stripped of this, right? And so several weeks ago, uh, this message or this idea came out of uh, my own study uh, through James as I was just doing my morning uh, routine and reading through the book of James. And so somebody last week after the message said, I really, really needed to hear that. And as they evaluated their own kind of hearts and motives and attitudes in life, they said, I really needed to hear that. And my response was, me too. Uh, that's where this came from. And so pretty much every single time that I ever have the opportunity to share on a Sunday morning, uh, it's always coming out of what I am learning and growing in myself and being challenged with in my own life. So this morning and throughout this series, this is not a uh, pastor guy up here like, hey, everybody, this is what you should do. I know the Bible and you don't. So let me teach you so you can be better. This is not that. This is like we're all in this together. We all live in the same world. We're all a part of the same culture. And uh, I just happen to get the opportunity to share with you what I'm learning. And I hope that it's helpful for all of us and that God uh, reaches in and changes us into being people who are more like him and follow him and follow his ways. And so as I read in James uh, chapter 2 verse 3, uh, James is talking to uh, a group of people that he's leading and he says, if you give special attention and a good seat to a rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can go stand over there or else sit on the floor. That is kind of our key verse throughout this series. And that's what I read that kind of jumped off the page at me. And I wrote this question down in my notebook one morning and I said, who is it, Nate? Like, who do I who do I ask to go stand over there in my life? Who are those people who I would consider them in my life uh, to have no sort of influence that I would actually want in my life and maybe even no relevant value to me because our opinions, views, beliefs, ideas, way of life, standing in life, whatever, is maybe so separated that I have come to the place where I maybe wouldn't say it out loud. I maybe wouldn't like say it that forcefully and, and abruptly, maybe like I am now, but in the way that I live, in the way that I interact with people, in the internal motives and motivations of my heart, are there people that I in some way or another kind of place off to the side and relegate them over here while at the same time giving other people in my life preference? Who are the people in my life that I would say, go stand over there, just, just go sit down over there. And so while this cancellation idea and cancel culture idea, this is not necessarily something new, although it's been being highlighted significantly uh, right now in our world. And even this week, I don't know if it's because I was looking for it because of this series or because it's actually happening more and more and more, but I would open up my news app and I'm not going to tell you which one I use, but I opened up my news app and it's like every single headline has something to do with somebody being canceled, some hotel being canceled because of the event they're hosting or another person or, or a country music artist to whoever. It's like the cancel culture is at it again, you know? And all that kind of stuff. And so I want you to know this morning that this is, this is, not, um, this is not preacher guy 
like coming in and making some sort of statement. Number one, I'm not wise enough or smart enough. And number two, I don't think this is the place for me to comment on everything that everyone in this room should believe should be canceled or believes should not be canceled. In fact, this morning is much more about me and we than it is they. This is much more about me and we than it is they. What I mean by that is what was written in Romans chapter 3. It says this righteousness was given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believed. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. And you could not ask for a greater dichotomy between two groups of people than Jew and Gentile. You think extreme liberals and extreme conservatives are bad? You, You think that that divide is so great? It does not even begin to compare to the wall that existed, the space that existed between Jew and Gentile. Jews were thought to be the chosen ones of God, the only ones who God favored, the only ones who God loved, those who were Christians maybe in their time, those who followed God and were favored by him. And then there's everybody else that was put into this this, uh, Gentile category. In other words, Gentiles were the ones who were told, go stand over there. We're the chosen ones. We're right. We know what's going on. And he said, in the economy of Christ, there is neither, no no Jew or Gentile, because I have overcome those titles to bring something so much greater, for we all have sin, Jew and Gentile, for we all have sin. We have all started in the same condition. We all begin in the same position as sinful, fallen humanity. For we all have sinned and we have come short of the glory in which God has already set out before us to live. We have all started from a position of not walking in his ways, not honoring his ways, not becoming the people who he has created us to be. We have all began from the same starting point. So we have all have sinned and we have fallen short of his glory. And we are justified freely. We are not justified by our works. We are not justified by our opinions. We are not justified by the fact that our theological points and nuances are exactly on point every single time. We are justified freely. We're justified for free, meaning in spite of the fact that we're often wrong. In spite of the fact that we often do things that we don't even want to do ourselves. In spite of the fact that we're often hypocritical. In spite of the fact that we think we have it all together, but we don't. We are justified freely through grace and through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Jesus changed everything. And so in this series, I'm going to quickly recap last week. And if you want more on what I mean by this, or I'm going to get to one, probably one of the points, you're going to be like, no, that's not the case at all. Just go back and listen to the message, okay? And uh, you can kind of get some broader context for that. But each week in this series, we're going to have one heading. This is going to be three weeks. Last week, today's week two. Next week will be week three. And we're going to have one kind of broad, overarching idea. And last week, the overarching idea that we landed on was this. Everyone gets honor. 
everyone gets honor. If we all start as sinners, if we all start as those who have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then we can show honor and respect to one another, not out of reverence for their behavior or their opinion, because they could never earn it, let's be honest. No one would ever be able to earn it, including me. If we could start from the point where we realize that it was his free gift and it was his grace that saved us, then we start on the same level playing field. That means that everyone gets honor, not out of reverence for them and their actions, behaviors, deeds, political party, affiliation, whatever. They get honor and respect because Christ Jesus died for them the same way he died for me. So everyone gets honor. Then we're going to look at three things in each of these series. So last last. Sunday, we looked at three starting points. Today, we're going to look at three commitments. And next week, we're going to look at three tools. And so last week, we began with one starting point that is foundational in viewing how we interact with this cancel culture type world that we live in. And starting point number one was that we're all more alike than we are different. That's the one I told you. You're going to be like, what? No, it's not true. We're we're way different, all right? So we are more alike than we are different. Starting point number two is we all have the same point of origin, meaning God created all of us, and he created all of us in a specific way as he intended us to be. We all have the same point of origin. And number three, we were made for relationship. And that's where things get really, really messy. Because in the very beginning, God created us and we walked and talked with him. We were in perfect and right relationship with God and with one another. But as soon as we stepped outside of the intentions and the relationship that God had set before us, and we made a decision to step outside of that into our own desires and our own will rather than his, it immediately broke the relationship with each other. And now we live in a world full of conflict full of conflict so much so that when Adam and Eve stepped outside of that relationship with God it created so much division in their own relationship that they hid from each other and they hid from God and one generation later their own child would kill the other child so much conflict we didn't even know how to deal with it And so from that point forward, our world has existed in the tension of the conflicts that we deal with in life. The conflicts in our world with trying to figure out who do we boycott, who do we not, which side of the aisle should we stand on, what kind of songs should we sing in our church. We have conflicts in our own families, in our own homes. See, conflict, it's the divide between two perspectives, ideas, preferences, or visions for a preferred future. Does that sound like your home? Does that sound like your marriage? Does that sound like our church, our community, our nation? It's the divide between perspectives and ideas, preferences, and visions for a preferred future. Anyone who has ever accomplished anything in their life and has overcome something would tell you as they look back that the one thing that they all have in common, one thing that successful people all have in common, is that they look at challenges and they look at what seems to be an obstacle as an opportunity instead. 
And we can look at the obstacles in life and we can look at the mountains to climb and we can look at the things that seem to be opposing us, resisting us, and we can cower down and we can hold our ground and we can try to just remain there or we can step through them and we can look to those things as an opportunity. So if conflict is the trouble that we face in this world, then that means conflict can also be an opportunity. Conflict can also be an opportunity for something great. Now the problem is for me... I often look at conflict as an opportunity to make my point. I can look to conflict as an opportunity to make sure the other person knows how right I am. I can look at the conflict as an opportunity to make sure that Mindy knows she has no clue what she's talking about. Just kidding. She knows what she's talking about every time. (laughs) Conflict is an opportunity. We see in Romans chapter 5, it says, you see, at just, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, when we, we had nothing to offer, we had nothing to give, and all of our wisdom, and all of our education, and all of our good standing, and all of our decorated background in history, and when we were really just powerless to actually help ourselves, when we were just bound and we were enslaved to be in conflict with one another, in constant conflict with God, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, even me. Even me. I am the ungodly. And we ended last week by saying that I am, I am the one. I am the one who was in need of forgiveness. I was the one who was in need of someone to come my way because I couldn't make it. I was the one in need of someone to extend me grace and mercy because I couldn't get it on my own. I was the one who was in need of someone to remove the shame that I carry. While we were still sinners, while we had nothing to offer and we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And I'm so glad that our Savior did not look at conflict as something to be avoided But he looked at a bigger picture. It was bigger than my sin. It was bigger than my issues. It was bigger than what I could see in front of me. He brought salvation that superseded all of the trouble of this world. And he saw conflict as an opportunity for his love to come alive. What if we saw conflict as an opportunity for love to come alive? What if we saw conflict as an opportunity for love to come alive? And that's the overarching thought for today. So as we do that, as we come to the table of our lives and our conversations and our disagreements and our frustrations and our tensions with the idea that love can come alive in that moment, there are three commitments that I want to talk about today. Number one is this. What if we all decided to make the commitment that I am committed to fight the right fight? I'm committed to fight the right fight. What do I mean by that? We can see in Timothy, okay, so there's a, uh, the book of Timothy was written to uh, Timothy, and it was written by Paul. Paul was mentoring Timothy. Now, Paul, uh, he was a guy who was a, an expert in the religious law. He had everything all together. He came from just the right background. Uh, he had some uh, money, and he had some status, and he had some accumulation of general broad respect from the religious community. And one day, Jesus showed up to him and said, you're doing it all wrong. You're working actually against me. And he was awakened and he began to follow Christ instead of his religion. 
He began to follow Christ instead of his way of doing things. And so Paul, in his journey of becoming a transformed man, ended up leading churches. And we are sitting here today in large part because of the work of Paul. But Paul was mentoring, and so he wrote letters to Timothy. And in this letter to Timothy, he says, But you, Timothy, you're a man of God, so run from all of these things. Talking about everything that had preceded this letter here, of all the matters of life and the things that people get wrapped up in. And Timothy, as you're leading this church, I want you to see it's not about all the things that you deal with. It's not about chasing after dollar signs. It's not about chasing after status. And so there's a whole list of things that he's talking about there. He says, don't chase after these evil things, but rather, but rather I want you to focus on a fight that's bigger than the fight I want you to be in the right fight he says I want you to pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith love perseverance and gentleness do you know what Joe Biden nor Donald Trump can ever take from me an unwavering commitment and pursuit of righteousness, a godly life, faith, love, perseverance and gentleness it does not matter who is in the White House I can still pursue that It does not matter who comes against me on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It does not matter what disagreement I'm in with my boss. See, no one has the power and authority over me as long as I am submitted to the power of one who is higher that is not of this world. These things cannot be taken from me, and that's why Paul wrote this to Timothy. I want you to focus on something greater than that. He says, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Don't just see what's in front of you, but fight the good fight for true faith. Meaning there must be some who have a version of faith, but it must be small-minded somehow. It must only be about the kingdoms and the ideas and the systems in the way of this world. But, but Timothy, I want you to fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to eternal life, not temporary life. Not just what you see in the temporary problems of day to day. And it's why Paul in other places could say that the troubles of this life, the conflict in this life, the turmoil in this life, they're light and momentary. They're for a brief moment, but there's a bigger fight that we're in. We're not just wrestling against one another in the flesh, but there is a greater plan at play. There is a greater war in play, and there is a greater fight to fight. And he says, Timothy, I want you to fight this fight. I want you to fight the good fight. Could we be committed to be in the right fight and fight the good fight for truth? Hold tightly to the eternal life which God has called you to. When we are called by God, we are called out of the systems and the kingdom of this world. We can't be in both. We can't fight for both. One undoubtedly influences the other, and we'll talk about that. But first, but first, could I make sure that I'm in the right fight first? Then the other stuff comes, yes. But first, could I be in the right fight? Could we be committed to be in the right fight? It's the one that I've called you to, he says, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. Many of Jesus' followers thought that the fight he came to fight was to overthrow the kingdom that they were existing in, to completely change the cultural, economic, and political systems of their day, and literally set up and establish a kingdom where he would sit on the throne and they would sit on the right and left. And Paul describes what Jesus did instead so well in Philippians. And it says, Therefore, 
if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any comfort, if any common sharing in the spirit of any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. How is that possible? (laughs) By being like-minded. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourself. As we continue to read this, I hope what happened for me happens for all of us in this room. God's word is living and active and alive. The most difficult thing for us to do is to see ourselves. That's why James said, you can listen to my teaching, you can listen to the teachings of Christ, but many of us will go and it's like walking up to a mirror. We hear the teaching, but we don't do it. We hear the teaching, but we don't live it. We hear the teaching, but we never allow our heart to be changed in a way that our lives would actually be different. He says it's like going to a mirror and you immediately forget what you look like and your hair is still messed up. You walk away from the mirror and your breath still stinks because you didn't brush your teeth after you smelled it bouncing off that mirror back into your face. The hardest thing in the world to do is to see ourselves. And so I'm praying that as we read through this, we see the way that Christ lived his life. And we can evaluate our own because when I get to words like this, do nothing out of selfish ambition, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm wondering, wow, is that me? Is Is that my life? Or do I operate a little more out of vain conceit at times? Do I approach arguments and conflicts in my home out of self protection and self preservation so much that? I can't even see my own faults, and I only see the faults in my spouse or others around me. But rather in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you looking to the interest of others. Does that sound like the church of Christ? Is that how we're known in the world that we live in? All those are the people that go out of their way not to look for their own interests, but they're always caring about other people. They're always fighting the right fight for someone else. They don't seem to get bogged down by the weight and the trouble of this world, but they seem to just have some kind of peace that goes beyond what they can even understand with their own eyes. That's those people, those those Christians that follow Christ. I wonder what it is that they have that they just don't seem to be taken down and they don't seem to be so negative, and they they seem to have an optimism and a hope that is so much different than anywhere else that we can find in our culture, in our world, because they're not looking to their own interests, but to the interests of other people's. I mean, it's it's just weird. Is that how we're known? I'm not sure. In your relationships with one another, he goes on, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who, and he's sharing, here's the mind of Christ, and it is completely different than the mind that I have without him. Completely different. He says, who being in the very nature, in very nature God. He was God. And he came here. says he did not consider it equality. He did not consider equality with God to be something used to his own advantage. Has there ever been a person who walked the earth that was more right in every single room than Christ? He was always the one who was right. And yet many times he is questioned and he's asked about what to do. And instead of responding with how right he was and making his point, he instead asked another question of the people asking him a question. 
He didn't consider it to be something of value to hold and to bring about his own advantage through his rightness. He was the one who was most theologically correct in every room he walked into. He was the one who was most perfect, carrying no shame or guilt for any past or present shortcomings because he had none. And yet, he, consider, he didn't consider that equality with God. He didn't consider that to be something used for his own advantage, but rather he, he made himself nothing. What? He made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. He humbled himself and not only that, but he humbled himself to be killed on a cross. He humbled himself to the lowliest of lows. He submitted himself to the worst of circumstances. He submitted himself to people who would ridicule him. He submitted himself to those who would mock him. And they would be flogging him and beating him. And mocking him to the point of saying, if you are who you say that you are, show me how right you are. Show me how good you are. Show me how perfect you are. Show me that you're the king and call down angels from heaven right now to protect you and to rescue you. But no, he submitted himself humbly, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the next word is crazy. Because we think that we win when we win. But Jesus won because he lost. Jesus won because he humbled himself, because he made it very apparent in one move. I'm not here to win the fight you think I'm here to win. There's something bigger at play here. And because he humbled himself and because he didn't use who he was to his own advantage and because he wasn't concerned about making sure that he was understood by everyone and everyone understood why he stood for what he stood for and because he didn't feel the need to defend himself because he was so right he didn't even need to defend his positions most of the time. Many of them wouldn't understand it anyway. It says, therefore, because he humbled himself, because he became a servant to all, because he looked out for the interests of other people above his own. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every other name. And it's the verse that we Christians, we love to quote it because it means that we're right. We were right about Jesus. And it says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But it did not come through him overthrowing the kingdoms of this world. It did not come for him fighting for his own way. It didn't come from him fighting for all the battles that we think that we're fighting with one another. It came through service and sacrifice and surrender and humility and death. And that's how he won, because he was in the right fight. Could we align ourselves with Christ to first and foremost make the commitment we're going to be in the right fight? Because love has the opportunity to fully come alive in the face of adversity, in the face of the challenges that we face. We win when love comes alive. That's the fight we're in. That's the fight we're in. So the fight we're in is not of this world. The fight we're in is not of the world we're in. It's a different kingdom. It's a different place. It's, it's a different game altogether. 
It's different rules. It's winning through serving. It's winning through giving up our own right. It's winning through being okay to be misunderstood. Tony Evans is a uh, famous, I guess you could say, famous pastor, author, writer, syndicated talk radio host, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he said it better than I could ever say it, but Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over. This is a new kingdom. This is a new way of doing things. The fight we're in is often not really the fight we're in. The fight we're in is something bigger. Could we be committed to be in the right fight? Number two, commitment number two, I'm committed to see people first. Could we come to the point where we're committed to see people first? John 3.17 says, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. You look all throughout scripture and you see we're constantly labels were given to people, making them subhuman. Samaritans in scripture were subhuman, and yet Jesus went and served them water from a well. Women in Jesus' culture were subhuman, had no status, no value, were treated like property, were traded for debts, And yet Jesus spoke to them and added value to them and cared for them. There's no one who's ever done anything more for women's rights than Jesus Christ himself. He was the original one who elevated every single human life. He broke through every barrier and title that existed. That tax collector, the worst person ever. The equivalent of what we would think of as a a human trafficker in our culture today. Tax collectors were the worst of the worst. In fact, on many occasions... They were referred to as tax collectors and sinners because tax collectors were so bad they had their own category beyond just being a sinner. And yet Jesus did not look to them and judge them and categorize them by their label. And if I were really, really, really honest, and I'm going to be because I think that's kind of a silly prerequisite, I would like to be honest and not have to say that I'm going to be honest right now. I often categorize people in my mind by their political party. And as I'm writing down, reading James, go stand over there, go sit over there. On my list of people that I have found myself doing that with is the list of people who are on the other side from me. And I think, oh, well, if they're, well, that must mean this, this, and this about them. And they probably, we probably wouldn't get along. We probably wouldn't have that much in common, all of that. And maybe some of that's true. But you know what? That gives me an escape from doing, caring about that person, loving that person, going the extra mile for that person, sacrificing for that person, surrendering for that person. Because I just said, go stand over here. You're, you're, you're in this corner in my life, and I'm just going to keep living and doing what I'm doing. I often look at people who have big problems in life. And I I look sometimes at the trajectory of the decisions that they've made. And many times, because I'm a pastor, people will come to you for advice and they immediately go and do the opposite. And so sometimes I think, well, you did this and, and then you went and did that. And then you were with her. And then, oh, it all makes sense. And I leave it over there in the corner and I go on about my business. Because I just explain their problem away And while I was busy explaining and diagnosing and figuring out why they were where they were, 
I exempted myself from actually caring about the situation that that person's in. While I'm trying to figure it all out, make it all make sense, you know what I'm not doing? I'm looking at problems first and I'm not looking at people first. And no matter what road that person took to get there, if they asked me for advice and they went the other direction at every single turn and every single decision and they still landed themselves here, am I not committed to Christ enough and out of reverence for him and his death and his sacrifice for them, committed to care for them just the same as I was back here? But for me, maybe it's just me. I write those people off sometimes. Not really on purpose. But I give myself permission not to care because I'm, I, I got it figured out. I see what they did. Sorry for them. I hope they do it better next time. And I'm moving on. That's what I do. Sometimes we care about positions, problems, and parties first when our call is to care for people first. In our culture, we're really, really good. And it's not just our culture. It was the culture of Jesus. We had Samaritans. We had women. We had tax collectors. We had Pharisees. We had all of these different groups of people. And you know what Jesus gave himself permission to do when he was here? Care for people first. He got rid of their titles. But what we do when we dehumanize people in our culture and we say, you are a liberal, you are a conservative, you are a homosexual, you are a fill in the blank. No, they're not. I am not a Republican. I am not a conservative. I am not a Democrat. And I am not liberal. That's not me. I am who God says I am. I am God's creation. I am his value and his worth. Those things may be things that I align myself with in their ideologies, of course. But when we make ourselves and we make other people out to be a label, we stop caring for people. Dehumanization is the process of which we deprive a person or group of positive human qualities. These people on the other side of our Facebook posts are people. Dehumanization, this process, is the process of slowly removing people out of the moral boundary of how we know to treat others. We know how to treat others. We know how we would tell our kids to treat other people. We know. We know that we're designed to be connected to them. They're within the moral protective zone until... until we can begin to associate them with a certain idea or label... Or image. Until we can put them into another category, and then we push them out of the bounds of our moral parameters. I know how to treat people. I know how to respect people. I know how to love people. I know how to honor people. When we put a label on them, we move them out of that moral protective zone into exclusion where they're no longer protected by what we say that we believe is God's value on their life. Why is it? That it does not offend us, hurt us, trouble us deeply to our core when we hear somebody slamming and defaming the person of Donald Trump. Why is that? And on the other side, why doesn't it hurt us equally as much when we hear someone defaming and slamming and labeling the person who is Joe Biden? Those should equally trouble us as Christians because we're about people first.
Isn't it so easy? And if this sounds harsh, if this sounds condemning or judgmental, um, if I'm on the borderline of that, it's because this is how I have been speaking to myself. So I don't want you to hear this as, as me as I'm on some platform and some higher ground here. I am so, so deeply internally convicted about the way I have viewed God's people. And what I mean by God's people, we all have value whether we are a Christian or not because we're all his creation. And I am so glad that I had the same value to Christ before I knew Christ that I do now that I know him. I'm so glad. I was not subhuman. I was his creation. I was the reason that he came here and he did that for me. How could I not love other people in the same way? And we're going to go to point number three. Could I be committed to love as he has loved? Could I be committed to love as he has loved? John 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. See, we don't get the choice just to love however we want to love people. And I know that that can get messy because it's like, well, some people, well, I love my kids so much, I'm just going to keep giving them money and bail them out of all of their troublesome situations. When maybe real love in that situation would be like, Let's help them learn how to manage their own money so that they can pay their own bills, right? And so there are these things that we stand, well, I, I stand for my conservative values because I love people. I get that. I do. Or I stand for my liberal values because I love people. I understand that. But we don't get to just be selective in how we love. He says, love as I have loved. How did Jesus love you? Did he love you when you were wrong? Yes. Did he love you before you knew you were wrong? Yes. Did he love you when you had nothing to offer? Yes. Did he love you when you were a deadbeat? <laughs> Did he love you when you were completely immoral and had no moral compass for living your life? Did he love you when you were totally dead with nothing to offer anyone? Yes. Did he love Peter? And he would have been talking to Peter when he said this and all of his disciples. I want you now to go and love how I have loved you. And Peter was forgiven even when he denied Christ. Even when he said, I will never, ever do that, Jesus. He did it anyway. I've done that. <laughs> I'll never do that. And then, then I do it. Or I'm never doing that again. And then I do it again. No, he loved him through that. Thomas was standing there knowing that I'm going to die and then I'm going to be raised again to life and a whole bunch of people are going to see me resurrected and they're going to say that I was resurrected and I know that Thomas is not going to believe it until he sees it for himself anyway. I loved him even in the midst of that. He loved the worst of the worst. He loved the best of the best. He says, love as I have loved. If you look that up, it's really not that complicated. The original definition of that word love there is to have preference for, to wish well, to regard for the welfare of. And he says, by this, by the way you show preference for one another, by the way that you wish well to other people, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So here's the deal. I'm really, really, really not saying stop posting on Facebook. I'm not saying that. I'm really, really not saying like, don't vote. We're not about the kingdoms of this world. 
you know, think about like heaven and just don't worry about all of this stuff down here. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. I'm really not saying that. But what I am saying is, could we come to the place where in our Facebook posting, in our conversations with coworkers, in our arguments with our spouse, in our arguments within our own home and with our children, in the conversations of our church and what we should do or not do. Do you know there are people who have left our church in the last several months because we're not requiring everybody and we're not policing you to wear a mask in the building? Do you know that there are people completely on the other side who have yet to come back to church until we take the signs off the door that say you have to wear a mask when you come in here? we got people on all sides of this. In our conversations about masks or no masks, how to deal with the pandemic, how to not deal with it, was it even a pandemic in the first place, or all the numbers flaw? Like, come on. In the middle of all of that, could we realize that's not really the fight we're in? We're in a fight to love one another the way that He loved us, and we win at the end, no matter how all of this shakes out. We win at the end of the day when love comes alive in us. And I can lay my head down at night and I can have peace that goes beyond who's sitting in the Oval Office. I can have peace that goes beyond whether the things in my life are completely out of order and in chaos. I can go to bed at night having peace that goes beyond whatever I can understand when I know that I love people today the way that He loved me. I'm going to do it imperfectly, but I'm going to do my best. And it starts with us being loved first. So this morning, we have the opportunity as we come to the table and as we receive communion, what we are receiving is the power in a moment for His love to come alive in us before it comes alive through us. Many of us are not able to love other people as He is loved because we have not been loved ourselves. For many of us, our shame, our unworthiness, our guilt, our doubts, our questions have stopped us in our tracks from really being able to receive God's love. And if we can't get that, we'll never be able to love other people the same way. And our world will continue to be a mess. And our world will continue to not be able to see that we are his followers by the way we love if we can't be loved first. So, Father, I pray that in this moment and as we reflect for a few moments, I pray that for each of us in this room, for our own hearts, that somehow we would be able to have the power to understand how deep and how wide and how high and how long your love is for us, how extravagant it is for us, that you didn't just love us, but you loved us so much that you gave everything. You served us. You laid down your life. I pray that that would not just be an idea that's for a community, but in this moment we would know that that was for us, that your love is for us. And no matter what we face in this world, no matter the trials that we face, the conflicts we face, the struggles we face, we know that your love can come alive in us. And as it comes alive in us, it can come alive through us as well. This morning I want to invite you as you're listening to this song to receive communion when you see fit, but I, but I wonder if we could just have this moment to receive his love and for his love to come alive in us first as we remember and observe through communion what he has done for us.